Well, then, with a view to the help and guidance of God, let's uh, turn to the book of Exodus, which we've been studying really for some time, and chapter 20. You'll find the text on page 114 in the Church Bible. Exodus is the second book, chapter 20. And reading at verse 7, the words of the third commandment, which tells us, all of us individually, remember this is you, singular, thou, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Assuming our study on the book of Exodus, we're of course returning to Mount Sinai, where the vast population of Israel, over two million people, are encamped. And of course at this point, God has given commands to fence the mountain, and there is a visible manifestation uh, of God, of God's presence on the mountain, in fire and in thunder, in smoke and so on. And the whole giving of the law is prefaced by the giving of the Ten Commandments, which are different from the rest because God speaks them audibly in the hearing all the people. And these Ten Commandments lie as the foundation of all the rest of God's commandments and always do. Whenever God makes a covenant with sinners at all, the Ten Commandments are involved in it. That is true of the new covenant that he has made with us in Christ. Ten Commandments lie at the heart of that. That's because they always express his holiness as well as the holiness that he requires of us. You be holy because I am holy. So that, I'll put it first in a, in a theoretical way, so that if God were to become man, this is exactly how he would live. But of course we know that God did become man and this is exactly how he lived. So the calling lies upon us always to keep the Ten Commandments. Now after telling them first of all to worship himself exclusively no other gods in his presence before his face he then of course told them how to worship him truthfully according to the second commandment making no false representation of him either by image by picture or even by painting verbal pictures too we must always express God's nature truthfully and reverently And now, in the third commandment, he commands us to worship him sincerely or seriously. And we do that by making sure that we don't take the name of God in vain, either in life generally or especially in our worship. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now this is one of the commandments that we tend to think of as being maybe limited in scope, uh, as though it 
just had to do with swearing, whatever exactly swearing means. We'll consider that, God willing, next Lord's Day in more detail because I honestly don't know if we understand very well what swearing means. But like the rest of the commandments, this one is wider and deeper than we realize at first. It isn't just to do with our speech. It's to do with our conduct and to do with the way that we live our lives. And in the way that we live our lives, generally, we must make sure that we are not taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. Now, I want this morning with you to consider the commandment like that more generally, how it relates to our life. How is it that we can take God's name in vain in the way that we live? And next, Lord, stay if we're spared and well, and God willing, we'll look at how this commandment especially relates to our speech. How we must make sure in the words that we use that we don't take the name of God in vain. So let's begin then by taking a careful look at the actual terms used in the commandment. Now sometimes with the word of God you need to first analyze it and then synthesize it. You need to first of all take it apart and then put it back together again because that's the way that God has written these things. And it's important to first of all take it apart. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now what does the commandment mean by speaking of the name of God? And I suppose it's obvious that in the first place the name here refers to Lord itself. The capitalized L-O-R-D. Whenever you see it capitalized in this version of the Bible, that's a reference to what we usually say uh, as being God's personal name, Jehovah, or sometimes as it's pronounced, Yahweh. The reason there's uncertainty about its pronunciation, by the way, is quite an interesting one, because the Jews stopped using it. They, they never used this sacred name for God, which God, of course, if you remember back in Exodus 3, uh, God revealed this name, first of all, to Moses uh, as his own personal distinctive name. Moses wanted some kind of sign to take with him to Egypt so that the church would recognize his own commission. And God said, well, you explain the meaning of my sacred name, Jehovah, that it means I am. I am that I am a wonderful name, revealing God's nature and his glory. But that is his personal name, and the Jews avoided using it. And even when they were copying out the scriptures, they never put the vowels into this name. Now, the, the, the Hebrew language is written in such a way that vowels are underneath the consonants. But there were no vowels attached to this, just four consonants. So nobody really knows exactly how this name is to be pronounced. Nobody does. Um, in English, they developed the name Jehovah to represent it. Sometimes people having a guess at it say that it is Yahweh. The technical term for it was the Tetragrammaton because it has four letters that nobody really knows how to pronounce. That was evidence 
not of reverence really, but of something that can sometimes be mistaken for reverence, which is superstition. Um, God never said that his name was never to be used. Of course it was to be used, but it was to be used properly and reverently. It's typical of uh, a Pharisaic approach that they would go further than God said and hence not pronounce the name at all, and hence the consonants were lost. But this is God's personal name. But it's important to remember that God has other names, and he has other titles too. For example, the uh, Lord God here, God itself, is one of his titles. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He is, of course, Jesus. He is Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, and besides him there is none else. He is the Redeemer, um, and so on. I mean, there, there are scores of names and titles that belong to God in the Scriptures. So really, the name of the Lord your God here can refer to any one of these. Any name by which God chooses to make himself known and to reveal himself through. Because you remember in the Hebrew, I suppose in many languages, that names reveal things. Names tell us things. They tell us things. They're supposed to tell us things about the people who have these names. More respect was paid to that in the past. People thought a bit more intelligently about what names to give children. Um, reflecting their hopes for the children, their aspirations for the children, or perhaps reflecting God's kindness to the children, and so on. But certainly in the Hebrew, a name reveals a person, and God's name reveals his person. So wherever he reveals his name or his title, it is his glory that is being revealed, and God is jealous, of course, of his glory. So this is all to do with God's name, his names, his titles. The second part to analyze or break away is the idea of taking the name. You shall not take the name of the Lord. Now what that term really means is to take it up. The Hebrew word means to carry it. To carry it around. So you shall not take up the name of the Lord in the sense of carrying it or using it in any way. Now, of course, we normally and narrowly think of that in terms of taking it up on our lips and using it on our lips. You shall not carry it on your lips in a way that is in vain. But the expression is far wider than that. We carry the name of the Lord with us whenever we are identified with him in any particular way. When we live lives that have his name connected with them, it's to do with our profession. It's to do with taking up a witness, uh, taking up the Lord's testimony, so that his name is identified with us. You today, if you're a believer, what is your name? Uh, what is God's will for you to be called? Well, it's a Christian. That is your name. Now, uh, or it's your title. And you'll notice whose name is in the title. So every time really you think of yourself, or somebody thinks of you and says, well, look, that person is a Christian. 
The name of Christ is on that. Because the name of Christ is on you. Which means that you are carrying the name of God. You have taken up the name of God and you are carrying it. Wherever you go. Even if you never open your lips. Therefore you must not take or carry that name of God in vain. I'll come back to this idea in more detail a little later on. So to take up God's name is to use any of his names or titles, using it either on our lips or in our lives. The third part to analyze closely is that we're not to take up that name in vain. In vain. This Hebrew word means light or empty. In other words, we mustn't take up God's name in life or in an empty, careless, superficial or frivolous way. And that's because God himself <coughs> is not light or empty or superficial and his weight, his heaviness is attached to his name. His name reveals his heaviness, therefore deal with it in a way that is witty and a way that is serious and reverent. When I say that God is witty, I mean that he has gravitas. No one has gravitas like God. Gravitas is something that we value, and again I'll come back to that a little bit later on, but God is supremely uh, gravitas. And that gravitas must always be attached to his name. And in connection with that, we can think of two verses. The Lord's Prayer, the prayer that he instructed us to pray, is first of all, our Father, which art in heaven. Second, hallowed be thy name. Let thy name be hallowed, in other words, by us. Why? Because it is hallowed anyway. His name is holy, Christ says, therefore hallowed. Respect that holiness by hallowing that name. In Psalm 111, which we'll sing, God willing, at the end of the service, uh, the psalmist refers to this holiness that's attached to the name of God. <clears throat> he tells us that God sent redemption to his folk, he commanded his covenant, holy his name, and reverend is always. His name is holy, and therefore to be reverenced. It is holy, therefore you reverence it. It has gravitas, therefore give it gravitas. It's holy, hallowed, respected, feared, honoured at all times. So Psalm 111 says that too. Now, <clears throat> if we put all that together, we can just simply say that God, due to his own weight and gravitas and holiness, attaches the same weight and gravitas to the names that reveal his holiness. And so it's not to be taken on our lips or in our life in an empty, careless or foolish way. Now then, as I said at the beginning, let's focus, first of all, on our conduct. And I think it might be useful uh, in more ways than one if we 
tie up this whole idea of respecting or reverencing God's name and of conduct, if you tie that <coughs> up with the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, because they both remind us what it means to have God's name upon us. Take, first of all, baptism. Now, if you were raised in a professing Christian home, which I would guess a fair number of you have been, then in all probability you have been baptised and you were baptised as a child. Now, whether you realise it or not, that means that all your life long there is a, a close and special intimate relationship between yourself and the name of God. This name which you must not take or carry in vain. A close, special relationship between yourself and the name of God. Now you'll be familiar with the fact that when we baptise in the church we normally use the formula that Christ has told us to use. We are to baptise into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. So we are baptized into the name of God. Or to personalize this like God personalizes the commandment, you have been baptized into the name of God. Now if I was going to ask you, well, what does that really convey to you? Or if you were to ask me, what does that convey that I've been baptized into the name of God? Well, I suppose the fundamental idea is that you are his ownership. Of course, in one sense, everything belongs to the Lord. The earth belongs unto the Lord and all that it contains. But there are special kinds of ownership that God has. And one of them is connected to baptism. The moment his name is placed upon you, he owns you in a special kind of way. You are marked out as being also not just owned, but under his authority. There is a special obligation on you by baptism uh, to be obedient to God because you carry that name with you all the time. Now again, of course, everyone is obligated to obey God. That's absolutely true. The <clears throat> obligation lies upon every man and woman born into this world to be obedient to God. And that doesn't change the fact that once you are baptized into the name of the Lord, there is a special ownership on you and a special obligation to recognize yourself as under the authority of God. You're baptized into that name. And that name is also put upon you. When the, <clears throat> in the book of Numbers, and, and this is part of what God told Moses on the mountain, because really the most of these first five books tell us what God told Moses on the mountain. Told him a lot. But one of the things he told him was that whenever the priest was to bless the people, uh, he was to bless them using the, the name of the Lord. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee. The Lord be gracious unto thee. Um, the Jews used to notice that the uh, Hebrew name Lord there didn't carry any vowels but it had a different accent. Three times it's used it has a different accent each time. They always used to wonder why it has a different accent. I think there's a faint allusion there to the Trinity to each person. But when God said to the priest bless them like this, put this threefold blessing upon them he then says in doing so he says you will put my name 
you will put my name upon me. That too is a, a very interesting and profound thought. Like when the benediction comes upon us, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That is a, a reminder to the covenant people of God that his name is upon them. The blessing puts God's name on them. Ownership, obligation. <clears throat> we should always leave the service with that consciousness that not only have we heard something of God to which we are respond, to which we respond, not only have we heard our own duty which we are to keep, but we are to leave with the name of God placed upon us. He has put the name, the brand of ownership and of authority upon us. Like the seal that we thought of last Sabbath day. God's people are sealed on their foreheads. That is connected to our baptism. And the name that came upon you in baptism, of course, was a threefold name of Father, Son and Spirit. And from the moment that water hit you, that name is a name that you carry with you wherever you go. You're here in your 50s, in your 40s, I don't know, whatever, you are baptised, the name was on you, still on you. The name of God is still on you, and like I said, you carry it wherever you go. Now, I don't know if you thought about that at all. I don't know if you thought about it once and forgot about it. Maybe you've never even heard it. But it's important to think of it in terms of your privilege, friend, today, because baptism does signify a privilege, in terms of your special responsibility having been baptised, and in connection with the judgment of God being judged as one who was baptised. Now, I'm conscious that you could say to me, and people say this kind of thing, you say, well, I never asked to be baptised. You know, I, I never asked to be baptised as a child. Well, the only answer to that is that it would be disrespectful to say, so what? But the fact of the matter is that the answer is it doesn't matter. That, that doesn't matter. That doesn't come into it at all. The fact of the matter is that by God's appointment, you have been baptised as a child. That is it. We need to deal with that. Because that is the fact. There's a huge difference between saying that I didn't ask for a privilege and that therefore the privilege doesn't matter. These two things are not the same. You may not have asked for it, but it still matters. Think about the many things in life that you never asked for, but that still matter. You, you never got to choose your parents either, did you? You never got to choose the country of your birth either, did you? And, and normally, if we've been born and brought up in a country that is free or spiritual or covenanted even like your own, we would normally consider that to be a privilege rather than being born in a nation that is dark, constantly war-torn, ignorant, bloody, and so on. We would normally say, well, I didn't ask to be born here, but I'm thankful to be born here. And normally, if our parents are God-fearing, we would say, well, I'm, I'm thankful that God saw to it that I was born to God-fearing parents or to Christian grandparents or whatever. We would never dream of that as a reason. The fact that we never chose it, we would never dream of it as a reason for saying, well, you know, I'm not accountable for that. Well, the same is true with your baptism. You never asked for it. But God gave it. God gave it. And he gave it because it's a privilege. 
under responsibility. And therefore, it's our duty to respond to that. All of us. Me. You. It's not just an event. It's not just what people call a christening. Or what some people say, need to get the children done. Done, done for what and for whom? Done why? For a community? For reputation? It's a sacrament. It's a washing with water. Where serious and solemn things are brought before us in that very act. So God's name is on you. And the fact of that, fact of the matter is that just because of that, friend, if you're baptized, it means that you are today. Let me be clear about this. You're carrying the name of God with you wherever you go. Now, do you think of that? You're carrying God's name with you wherever you go. And that's why it's possible, and this is quite a cutting thing, and the commandments are, you know, the commandments are far easier to deal with in the Old Testament than they are in the New Testament. The the Pharisees were quite, quite comfortable thinking that they were keeping the Ten Commandments until Christ went into them in the Sermon on the Mount and started to unpack them one by one, what it meant to keep an oath, or what it meant to, to, to commit adultery or to be pure or chaste, <clears throat> what it meant to love our neighbour, what it meant to covet, what it meant to swear. When he went into all these things one by one, and anyone who was, whose conscience was not dead would begin to say, well, <laughs> it's not so clear that I'm keeping these things at all. That, that's the way the commandments are. As David said when he considered that thy commandment, he said, is exceeding broad. So it is, and exceeding deep. And there's no way, really, that we will ever come to know God as our Savior and Redeemer unless we discover the problem in here. And the problem in here is never going to be seen unless the light of God's law shines deep into it. And as a baptized person, Suppose you never take God's name in vain with your lips. Your whole life may be an illustration of a breach of this commandment because you are carrying the name of God in vain by simply not acknowledging him and owning him as your Lord. Have have you thought about that? That your whole life is a breach of third commandment. His name is on you in baptism and you have not honoured that. Now, again, in your defence, and maybe you would say it in your defence, and I too would say it in your defence, that you've never thought about it like that. Maybe not. But now you need to think about it like that. So from here onwards, think, I have been baptised. And just work from that. See where that takes you with the blessing of God. And I'll pray that it takes you somewhere with the blessing of God. You need to respond to it properly. So that's baptism. But second, there's the Lord's Supper. Now again, the Lord's Supper is to do with professing the name of the Lord. It it belongs to maturity and adulthood. To those who are beyond the years of twelve when the Lord himself partook of the covenantal meal. And of course it has to do with professing the name of the Lord. Does it not? We always speak about professing 
at the Lord's table. It has to do with proclaiming the Lord's death, the preciousness of the Lord's death to yourself. You proclaim it at his table until he comes again. The theological word that we use of both the Lord's Supper and baptism is sacrament, from the Latin sacramentum, which came from the oath of allegiance that the normally the Roman soldiers took to the emperor. It was unconditional allegiance. The soldiers were to unconditionally serve the emperor. So they took the oath of allegiance, which was a sacramentum. It is a way of saying that we are all together pure. And when we come forward to the table of the Lord, we are acknowledging that ownership again. The waters of baptism may have been applied to us, but when we take our place at that table, we are confirming that. And we are saying, yes, indeed, Lord, I am yours, and I am altogether yours, in an oath of allegiance, which I reaffirm every time I sit at this blessed table. Sometimes the Gaelic language, which many of us has, has interesting expressions that penetrate to the root of a thing, although we don't realize it. For example, if I was going to say to you in Gaelic, that expression literally translated is, well, we use it of a person who's um, professed, which means to lift up a witness, to carry up, he's taken up a witness, she's taken it up, and they're carrying it. To take up a witness. Again, it means we are identifying with the name of the Lord. Many of you will remember a <coughs> A Christian from Point who passed away a few years ago called Sandy Russell, as he used to be called. But I remember him speaking more than once on the question meeting, and he he often referred to the effect that his call at Paper Sand when he was called. I can't remember what it was actually into wartime service, the date stones, or was it just national service? I can't remember. But he got the call at Paper Sand, everyone used to get them, and on the envelope was OHMS. On his Majesty's servants, and he said that the you know the effect of these letters themselves was was so great you know what it was conveyed that you were on His Majesty's servants, and the thing was woven into the uniform that was worn as well, O H M S, and he said it it had a profound effect on himself anyway because he said I was always conscious in my uniform that I was representing my Lord. In his majesty, I was in his service. I suppose it's one of the reasons why those who are preachers of the gospel uh, would sometimes would wear collars, which there are several reasons why I think that is good and right to maintain, but one of them was just that, that it always gave a consciousness to the person that they were on their majesty's service in a particular way. So he was representing the king. That's how he felt. Sandy Russell said he felt that in everything he said and did, he said, I was representing the king. Lifting up a profession, Toka, Fianish, the sacrament reminds us of that. As does indeed the name Christian. Let me go back to that. I, I mentioned a minute ago. God has seen fit that the name attached to us who believe in the Lord, is actually Christians. We're told in the Bible that 
the Lord's people were first called Christians in Antioch. Now that was God's way and providence of planting his name on us. Young people years ago, I don't know if the practice uh, still prevails, if you can, sometimes these things are fashionable, but you may remember a few years back anyway, some Christians used to wear a kind of bracelet with uh, WWJD on it. What would Jesus do? Now, uh, like I said, many of these things can sometimes be fashionable, and of course it's far easier to wear it than to honour it. But you know, the idea behind it is smart enough. The idea behind it is, in every situation, to consult this question. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus have me do? And of course, what Christ would have me do is so closely related to what he would do himself. Because, as you'll remember, and I've constantly tried to highlight in connection with the Ten Commandments, they are there as a pattern. He walked in fulfilment of these commandments, and so we walk in the same way. Christ's name is on me, therefore what should I do? And the fact is that we should all strive to make sure that the gravity that God has is reflected in our own lives too. Be ye holy, for I am holy. My name is holy. My name is upon you. Therefore you be holy. You have gravitas. <coughs> Wait. You expect gravitas in certain areas of life. I mean, for example, you would expect it in a politician. And a politician that lacks gravitas won't last long, really. It doesn't, doesn't matter. They, they just won't last long. Um, the word behind uh, gravitas or solemnity appears four times in the New Testament where office bearers are to make sure that they possess it. Their wives, incidentally, are also to make sure, there's a reference in connection with deacons' wives, that they possess gravitas. And the aged are to possess gravitas. It should even more distinguish them than it should the youth. But these are three references. I must admit I wasn't aware of the fourth and until I looked it up especially. And it's in a text that we looked at, I think, last, thir- last a couple of Thursdays ago in, in Philippians, where Paul is referring to our conduct. And, uh, and this is interesting because it's not addressed to office bearers, not addressed to the age. It's actually to all Christians. We are frequently told to be uh, sober-minded, but this is a particular word that, that reflects um, solemnity. Um, general seriousness in conduct. Um, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble and just and pure and lovely, if there's any virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And there he's dealing with the need to discipline our minds, to make sure our minds are not set on triviality and rubbish or things that are unclean, things that defy you. And you know, a lot of people uh, are taken up with reading and watching stuff that, because it's fictional, they think it doesn't defile. And it absolutely defiles. Absolutely it defiles. But he says, 
On the contrary, the things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. It's amazing how the apostle can set himself up like that. Uh, we would have a difficulty doing so. But he can do so. Isn't that remarkable? He says, the things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me do. And the God of peace will be with you. Now the reason I mention that is because when he says whatever things are true and noble, see that word noble, it's actually that word um, that, that we could translate as gravitas. Whatever things have weight, substance, importance attached to them, he says, think on these things. Think on these things. And there's a lot of what passes for entertainment and amusement that just doesn't fit with any of that. Now, children are children. Children are in an age where amusement and entertainment fits, but the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child and so on, when I became a man, I put away childish things. When you become a woman, you do the same things too. And there are amusements and entertainments that are okay for children that are not the business of God's people to be in. Because fundamentally, we are to be serious people. Doesn't mean you have no sense of humor. But it does mean that you are fundamentally serious. You're not a clown. You don't fool around in the presence of other people. Um, you don't let down the gravitas and the dignity of the name of God which is on your forehead. You're sealed with it. You're baptized with it. It's confirmed on you every Lord's Supper so you carry that dignity around with you. Flippancy, foolishness and frivolity. Uh, that takes us back to another Gallic word which is very interesting. You know, when a person was felt to be living in a way that was not really in accordance with how they should live as Christians. What were they called? Utrop. Actually, the same, the same is in English, really. That person is light. Light. Utrop. Lacking weight. Lacking gravitas. Uh, that's why these words are sometimes uh, so penetrating. It's, it's always good to go back to the words that our forefathers used in connection with everything and just ask, why did they use them? That person lacks weight, they lack body, and they lack gravitas. And especially, these things come to the fore in connection with worship, where God's name is to be revered. Reverence becomes thine house forevermore. The worship of God is to do with his name, the proclamation of his name. From the beginning, where we call upon the name of the Lord, right to the end, where his name is placed upon us in benediction, the whole thing is an exercise in honouring the name of the Lord. You take up a concordance, eh? if not when you go home, sometimes take up a concordance and see how often the name of the Lord is referred to in the Bible. Not just the Lord, but the name of the Lord. See how often it's referred to in the Bible. Now that reminds us that the worship of God it's not a place for entertainment or amusement. It's not a place for lightness, for flippancy, for frivolity. It's not about producing a feel-good factor, where so many congregations seem to be concerned with having a buzz in it. It's a buzz. It's a buzz in a congregation. 
you need you need an awareness of the presence of God and a corresponding gravitas to the gravitas that that name carries. Simple as that. It's not complicated. Simple as that. It's a sad thing, you know, that if you would go to many places today, you would find far more dignity in a Roman Catholic service of worship than you would in an evangelical one. Far more dignity. Most of these old communions, whatever they like, seem to at least have preserved that. Just as they preserved the Psalms, incidentally. Evangelicals don't like reverence and they don't like Psalms. I wonder what that says. But last of all, and I'm closing with this, it takes me to an aspect of this commandment that's easily overlooked. And I suppose you, you reach a point where maybe the connection with the commandment is a, a little more tenuous, but I wouldn't say this was a tenuous thing. Respecting the name of God, making sure you don't take it in vain, has something to do with how you treat other things that, has, that have the name of God attached to them in a special way. And like I said earlier, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Everything comes to it. Yes. But you know that God fixes or attaches his name by way of ownership in special ways to special things. The easiest way to explain that is just to take examples. If I say to you, God's word, you know immediately that I'm referring to the Bible. I'm not referring to any truth that is spoken anywhere. I am referring to the Bible. His name is attached to this book. It is the Lord's book. Therefore, we don't carry it in vain. We don't deal with it in a superficial or flippant manner. When I speak of the Lord's day, you know immediately that I'm speaking of the Sabbath day, which God has marked out as his day. He stamped his name on it. You notice that? He stamped his name on this day. It is the Lord's day. It's Jehovah's day. Therefore, we keep it holy. Uh, breaking God's, um, disrespecting God's holy day is a breach of the third commandment as well as the fourth. Uh, the Lord's house or the Lord's temple. Ye are the Lord's temple, God says to the Corinthians. When we assemble together, it becomes the temple of God, the house of God. God dwells in a worshipping assembly. Let reverence characterize the house of God. Or even God's people. Everyone belongs to God, but his people especially so. They all have their name on the forehead. That means that I need to respect you and you need to respect me. Uh, if you have become a holy vessel to the Lord, that says something to me. And if I have become one, that says something to you. Let's have a special respect for one another if we carry the name of the Lord. Now, like I said at the beginning... Most applications of this text have to do with speech, oaths, profanity, blasphemy, swearing, and so on. These things are distinct, they're all important, but it's best to deal with them together. But I think, as a preparatory for that, preparatory for that it is good for us to remember that it's just far more than what we see.
And may the Lord bless that to us as baptized people of professing the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord of God, grant us an awareness of uh, the greatness and majesty of your name. And uh, we pray to honour and to exalt it in our thoughts, in our speech and in our conduct. Uh, great is the Lord and greatly he is to be feared. And uh, may we hallow thy name just because it is holy. Give us grace to keep the commandment, and where we fail, even by falling short, O oh, wash us with that precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which loses none of its power through time. And uh, we pray that you would cleanse us soul, and if need be, to restore our vision of your holiness, just in case we have begun to think that you were all together like your sons. In Christ's name, amen. And we'll close <coughs> singing in Psalm 111 and verse 6. <coughs> Psalm 111, verse 6, he did. The power of his works to his people show, when he the heathen's heritage upon them did bestow. That's a reference to giving them the land of Canaan. His handiworks, or the work, works of God's hands, are truth and right. All his commands are sure, and done in truth and uprightness, they evermore endure. He sent redemption to his folk, his covenant for a he did command, holy his name, and reverend is always. And let's sing the last four stanzas we stand to sing. <coughs> <coughs> Yeah.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.